You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. I have a younger brother whose name is Aaron, and he's about five years younger than me. And it was uh, one time, um, about this time of year, almost 20 years ago now, uh, we were in Central Europe together, and we had this crazy thing happen to us. Uh, I just got to hang out with Aaron last week, and... Uh, we don't get to do that often, and so as we're hanging out, we were reminiscing about this bizarre experience, and, and this, is, this is what happened to us. We were, we were in Central Europe, and we were staying in this, it was this like big uh, bread, uh, like bread and bre- bed and breakfast type hostel thing, um, and, <clears throat> and it was uh, the middle of the night, and uh, everyone was asleep, and all of a sudden, I wake up because I hear somebody in this house screaming. I was fast asleep, as was everyone else. And just like that, this scream wakes me up. And so I'm lying there. My eyes are wide open. And if you can remember, you know, 20 years ago, uh, America's reputation internationally was not great. And so obviously the, the first thing I think is that some bad guy has come into this house and is going room by room killing people. And because there's only 10 rooms in the house, sooner or later he's going to get to our room. And so in that moment, I, I do what any of you would have done. I, I shake my brother and I tell him to wake up because someone is about to murder us. <laughs> and he, he woke up. And, and for the next couple hours... We were, we were trying to figure out what to do. We're in this room. We're trying to figure out what to do. Our hearts were pounding. I remember it felt like my heart was going like to come through my neck. We were so nervous and scared, and we, we kept putting our ears uh, to the door trying to hear this bad guy, and we were running through all types of scenarios and plans about what we were going to do. Should we open the window and climb on the roof? Should we grab a candlestick and, and fight? Um, should, should we just start reading the Bible out loud and start singing? You know, we, we, we put everything on the table. And at, at this point when this was happening, um, the one thing I knew for sure was that I was awake. Like I, I was not dreaming. Okay, I was awake. My brother was awake. We were both awake and we were paying attention and we stayed awake the entire night. It ended up being nothing, okay? Uh, couldn't find out. A kid in the room beside us had a bad dream, and he started screaming or something like that. And so nobody was hurt. Everybody was okay. The story has a good ending. But the thing I remember about that night, the thing that my brother and I were, were reminiscing about, was how awake we were. Middle of the night, fast asleep, And all of a sudden, like that, totally, completely, absolutely awake. And that matters for today's sermon because Jesus tells us to stay awake six times in Mark chapter 13. Jesus introduces the idea first in verse 9 when he says, be on your guard. And then he says it again in verses 23, 33, 35, and 37. So in the longest section in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13, Jesus' central command, which he repeats six times, 
is to wake up. And so what does that mean and why? That's the goal for today. We want to answer that question. And so here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to start with an overview of the entire chapter, okay? So that's like right here, okay? We're going to do an overview. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to dig down and we're going to look at two reasons why Jesus tells us to stay awake, and that's right here. So we're going to be here, and then we're going to be right here and right here, okay? That's, that's the plan. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Our Father, we ask that you would give us light today in your word. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive what you have for us because we come and we sit and we know you have something for us. You do right now in this room. You have something for us. So speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with the overview of this chapter. I want to just go ahead and say this is a hard chapter, okay? If you've been reading along in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this can be a little bit confusing, Mark chapter 13, because we're not exactly sure what Jesus is talking about here. So the context will help us. Remember, as we've seen in the last two chapters, that the temple has been the topic of conversation. Jesus came into Jerusalem in chapter 11, and right away, he went to the physical temple with his disciples, and he has been spending his time there having these confrontations with the Jewish leaders. Uh, last week, Pastor Joe showed us like five different confrontations that Jesus had with these Jewish leaders. And so when we get to chapter 13 this week, Mark starts chapter 13 by telling us about a new conversation that Jesus has. This time it's with his disciples, and it's this conversation at the beginning of chapter 13 that sort of wraps up all the talk about the, the temple. It starts in verse 1, if you, if you want to look there, in chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple, and, and one of his disciples, who, who's unnamed, he, he looks at the temple this building, and he is bedazzled by its beauty. And so this disciple says to Jesus, hey, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The disciple was impressed by the temple because the temple was impressive. Herod's temple would have, it still was under construction at this time, but most of it was complete, and it would have been a sight to see. It would have been like decked out in white marble and layered with plates of gold. And it was absolutely massive, like 35 acres of enclosed space massive. That's, that's the size of U.S. Bank Stadium, okay? And so this was an amazing structure. It was the largest temple in the ancient world. And really by any, any you know, anyone's standards, this was an amazing Building And so this disciple sees this structure in the first century. He's blown away, as we would be. And he says, wow, Jesus, check out this building. He wants Jesus to comment too. That's what we do, right? We're excited about something. We want people to get in. So he, he looks at Jesus. Jesus, look, wow, this is an amazing building. And Jesus replies, yeah, the building is great. And the whole thing is coming down. And that would have been the moment when the music stopped, right? For reading the gospel, this is when the record is, is kind of like the, this is, this is when 
Everyone is shocked by the words of Jesus. Nobody expected him to say something like this. This was one of the largest structures in the ancient world. It was the pride of the city. It was the pride of the entire Jewish nation. And Jesus, just like that, says, yeah, it's going to burn. This whole thing is coming down. And so they were amazed. They were shocked. And this is when Jesus starts teaching about when the Romans are going to come and destroy Jerusalem, including the temple, which happened in 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is a historical event that Jesus predicted. The Gospel of Mark was written a long time before this happened. Jesus predicts the future here. But what gets confusing about this chapter is that it's hard to tell sometimes whether Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD or if he's talking about the end of the world. Is Jesus talking about the siege of Jerusalem, which is going to happen in the immediate future, or is Jesus talking about the final day of God's judgment? The answer is yes. He's talking about both, and there's some debate on the details here, but most agree that Jesus is sometimes referring to the immediate future, and other times he's referring to the end of time. And Mark, I think, gives us a clue to know which is which. It has to do with the phrase, these days and those days. When Jesus says in chapter 13, these days, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's verses 1 to 13. In verses 28 to 31, when Jesus says those days or that day, he's talking about the end of time, which is verses 14 to 27 and 32 to 37. And you can see this shift most clearly in verse 32. Jesus says in verse 30 that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. But in verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And here he's talking about the end of time. And the reason Jesus talks about both of these together is because the destruction of Jerusalem in the immediate future is a foreshadowing of the coming judgment at the end of time. One way to say it is like this. These days of impending destruction is a picture of those days that will come later. Okay? Everybody tracking with that? Does that make a little bit of sense there? Just a little show of hands just to make sure. Okay, I see you. Thank you. All right. Now, with all that being said, Jesus' main concern in the passage is not the details of what will happen. It's also not the details of the timeline of when it will happen. Instead, Jesus' main concern is that his disciples persevere in the face of suffering and that they persevere in light of his return. That is what Jesus wants in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. That is what Jesus tells us to do. And he tells us to do this with one simple idea. He says... Stay awake. Stay awake. And so what does that mean? Jesus says we persevere through tribulation, 
with the end of the world on its way by staying awake. That's how it all fits together. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to stay awake or to be on guard? It's the same idea. Jesus uses them interchangeably. He says it six times here. We need to know what he's talking about. And Jesus gives us two reasons. All right, let me get there now. We've done the overview. Hard chapter, confusing chapter. But Jesus gives us two reasons here why we should stay awake. Reason number one, stay awake because of what you know. Reason number two, stay awake because of what you do not know. And these are more like categories instead of points. And so let's, let's start with this first category, stay awake because of what you know. Um, Jesus here in this category, he gives us three important truths about reality. One, he says the bad will get worse. Two, he says false teaching will spread. And then three, he's coming back to gather his people. All right, we can see this in the passage. Look at verse 19 first. This is the bad will get worse. Verse 19 for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So Jesus is talking about the future. And again, there's some debate here about exactly what he has in mind. But one thing is clear about what he's saying here, okay? It's going to be bad. It's not going to be good. There is going to be a severe tribulation, and it's going to feel like severe absolute mayhem, okay? And I know right away, um, because we may have different backgrounds uh, in the Christian tradition, uh, we immediately, we, we want to like, we have this instinct to pinpoint what's he talking about, right? What's Jesus talking about here? We want to figure out what he's referring to, and I think it's easy for us to imagine that he must be talking about, he has to be talking about some faraway terrible experience, right? This is, this is like some type of dystopian movie come true, okay? This is the twilight zone that Jesus is talking about, right? But just for a little perspective, as Americans, we should realize that we are in the minority experience for Christians when it comes to tribulation. We should remember that a lot of Christians have lived after Jesus said these words. And they have lived through atrocious circumstances. So is there going to be a coming future tribulation period? Millions of Christians around the world would say they're already in it. The, the latest research, this came out just last year, says that the persecution of Christians worldwide is the worst it's ever been before. And so without getting more into the details here, I just want to talk about the principle here, okay? The principle here is that either way you dice up the details, what is bad will get worse before the end comes. What I mean is that at the most basic level, the bad parts of our culture never evolve to become less bad. Sometimes I think we can assume it will. I think maybe we've, we picked up a bad case of evolutionary theory when it comes to uh, societal morality, and we can assume that if we just give it more time, even bad people will become good people. And I know that sounds optimistic, 
but it's just not true. And actually, it's dangerous. C.S. Lewis, he wrote the book, The Great Divorce, to make this point. This is the point he's making. This is what Lewis says. He says, evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. That's true for the evil in our society and for the evil in our own hearts. Leaving it alone does not work. And what that means, if anything, is that we cannot be passive. We cannot be passive to the wrongs of our world, and we cannot be passive to the wrongs in ourselves. And if we're not passive, what are we? We're awake, right? We're awake. Stay awake because the bad will get worse. Here's the second thing. False teaching spreads. Jesus tells us this in verse 21. Look at verse 21. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So in the future, Jesus says there will be rampant deception. He says there will be false messiahs and false prophets who are coming into the world to deceive the world and, if possible, even to deceive the elect. He's talking about the church here. He's talking about everyone who has believed in him, trusted in him. The church will be, we will be attacked by false teaching. And maybe this is the easiest for us to see today because it is a situation that we're in. There are false teachers everywhere. And it started as early as the first century. Most of the New Testament letters were written to address false teaching that had already crept into the church. We know that through reading the New Testament. And in fact, one of the main reasons for the office of elder or pastor is to guard the church's doctrine against false teaching. That's what pastors are for. And so let me just do a little side note here on pastors. Okay, a little parenthetical here. If we think that pastors are big cheese, we've got it all wrong. Pastors are more like gospel custodians. It is a role of service, not a role of power. And I want you to know that we are serious about this at Cities Church. When our pastoral team meets together every other week, it does not feel like a table of kings. It feels like a room full of happy janitors. And we're happy. And we've got work to do because deception's coming for us. False teaching or false anything lies of any kind, are trying to weasel their way into our church. And so pastors, we have to be on guard. Pastors have to stay awake because we have to help others stay awake, which means we all need to stay awake. We all need to stay awake because false teaching spreads. All right, third reason to stay awake. Jesus says, stay awake because I'm coming back to gather my people. That's verse 24. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be fallen from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And this whole part here, verses 24 to 27, is loaded with Old Testament allusions. The phrase there in verse 26 is taken straight from the book of Daniel. The Son of Man will come in clouds with great power and glory. That's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And unmistakably here, by Jesus saying this, he is claiming to be the Messiah, not just of suffering, but also of glory. Remember what Jesus has been saying up to now in Mark's gospel. He has told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He is in this city. He has come to this city to be killed. But here, Jesus says, one day he is coming back in apocalyptic splendor, which means Jesus here, the Son of Man, the Son of Man who will be marred beyond recognition will one day be the sovereign king of power and glory. He's coming back. And in the book of Daniel, where Jesus is quoting from, this is a coronation passage. My kids know what that word means, coronation. This is in Daniel where the Messiah has been given his kingdom. In Daniel, this is when the Messiah is given all dominion. And in the book of Daniel, you know what that looks like? It looks like all peoples, nations, and languages serving him. That's what dominion looks like. All dominion means that all peoples, all nations, all languages are serving him, which is the same thing happening here in Mark chapter 13. Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to come back, and he's going to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And this is very important. Notice the vast array of peoples this is. The four winds, man. You know what that is? I'm, I'm not sure either. But I'm guessing, <laughs> I think it's north, south, east, and west, okay? He's talking about everywhere, okay? It's, it's like Old Testament illusion again. He's, Jesus is talking about people from every conceivable direction there is. Everybody, okay? People from every conceivable direction there is, they all are going to converge on one single point, and it's that Jesus is their king. Jesus is an exclusive savior with universal importance, and that magnifies his power and glory. There is nobody like him, and he's everybody's only And the whole world, everything, is trending toward this realization. And so we have to use our imaginations here. This is where the Apostle John helps us uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Um, John gives us his vision. There's going to be a massive assembly of people. It's going to be men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and from every nation, from the four winds, everybody from the face of the earth, People from all these nations are going to be there. It's going to be colorful. 
and it's going to be loud. And everybody together, with all of our amazing differences, we are going to sing one song because we worship one Savior, and he's the king who died for us. He's the king who shed his blood to bring us together to bring us to him. And we're going to sing. We're going to sing together one song to our one king, and his name is Jesus. He's really coming back. He's really coming back. This is really going to happen. We will worship Jesus together. Every person gathered by his grace, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we will gather and worship him. It will happen. The second coming of Jesus is the most pervasive and repeated truth in the New Testament. And the Christian life, this thing that we're doing right now, is what we do until that day. And in summary, what, what we do is we stay awake. Stay awake because of what you know. And here's the second category. Okay, this is the conclusion here. Jesus says stay awake because of what you know, and also stay awake because of what you do not know. And this is actually the brunt of the passage. This is kind of the force of the passage. Look at verse 32. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And that's about as plain as it gets. Be on guard, keep awake, because you don't know when Jesus is coming back. And in case that's not clear enough, Jesus says it again in verse 34. This time he tells a little parable. A man goes on a journey, and he leaves his servants in charge, um, but he doesn't tell them when he's going to return, and therefore they need to always be ready. He could come back at any moment, so stay awake, stay awake. And if we're being honest here, at least for me, that sounds difficult. B because when I, when I read Jesus' words here, I can't help but read his words as a sleep-deprived human being. I mean, I know what it's like to be tired, right? You guys know what it's like to. I'm guessing a lot of us don't get as much sleep as we should. Okay, maybe it's because we have young children or for whatever reason, we all probably could get more sleep. And so I, I know what it's like to be tired. And, and you know, if you're tired, how, you know how hard it is to stay awake. You've been there, right? You're so tired, and yet you have to stay awake. You guys know what that's like? I remember uh, last year, we, uh, Melissa and I got to go to the orchestra with Sar and Sarah right here. That was a good time. That was fun. It was awesome. We, we got to go. We, we had an awesome dinner before the orchestra, and after we ate and after we were full, we went and we sat in this cozy, dim-lit room, <laughs> and the soft music started, and it was so beautiful. And it was almost too beautiful because it wasn't long, and I was, I was in an absolute battle. And... I was fighting to stay awake. And, you know, you got to be careful in those situations because you, you don't want to be the shaker. You guys know who the shaker is, right? 
You, you've sat beside him on a plane before. He's the guy who's like dozing off, and he's like, you know, shakes like that. You know what I'm talking about. So I'm more worried about being, a, being the shaker, you know. So I'm, I can't doze because I don't want to do the shake. And so I'm, I'm uncomfortable here. I don't, I'm so tired. I can't stay awake. I don't want to be embarrassed by shaking. And so I am fighting to keep my eyes open. And that was, that was a hard place. That's a hard, it's a rough place to be, right? And so I want to know, is that what Jesus is talking about here? Like how hard is this staying awake going to be? How hard is it going to be? Okay. So just to be clear, there is nothing easy around here. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, okay? Just to be clear. That's why we have the Spirit. But for your encouragement, Jesus is not talking about physical sleep. The command to stay awake is not a command to literally not sleep. The Bible actually talks about sleep as a means of grace. Sleep is a daily ritual of humility and faith, and it is good for us, man. Maximize the spiritual meaning of sleep. It is beautiful, okay? Sleep is good. So when Jesus says to be on guard or to stay awake, he's not talking about physical sleep. He's talking about something deeper. Jesus is using the contrast between physical sleep and physical awakeness as a metaphor for the spiritual. Jesus' command to stay awake is a warning against spiritual preoccupation and distraction. What Jesus is saying, what Jesus means, stop putting your spiritual life at the bottom of your list. Stop trying to just fit Jesus in when it's convenient for you. Stop treating the Christian life like it's a bunch of boxes you just need to check. When Jesus tells us to stay awake, he means to be vigilant about his reality. Don't lose sight on the meaning of this world. Don't loosen your grip on God's purpose for you. Be awake to what is. That's his point. And this is where it's relevant for us. This is where it lands for us. Jesus tells us to stay awake because unless we're awake, unless we are paying attention we will crowd our lives with things that make Jesus seem less real than he is. That is, that's, that is true. We know by experience. Unless we're awake, we will crowd our lives with things that make Jesus seem less real than he is. And that is our greatest problem, right? I am more convinced now than ever that our greatest problems come when other things are more real to us than Jesus. That is how our burdens grow. When we carry our burdens by ourselves, they keep us from seeing Jesus. And when we can't see Jesus, the burdens just get heavier. And the heavier they get and the bigger they get, they start to eclipse the realness of Jesus. They start to drown out the music of his grace. And Jesus is saying here, hey, don't let that happen. Hey, wake up, wake up. Okay, Jesus, okay. I want to wake up, 
I want to be awake. But what about when I'm not? Is there any good news this morning for those who are spiritually sleepy? Which can be all of us at times. What about when I'm, I'm spiritually exhausted? I've been praying, but it feels like God doesn't hear me. I've been trying to move in the right direction, but trouble does not leave. I've made mistakes, and I cannot get past the guilt. I'm lonely, and I'm smothered by shame. I want to be awake. I want to be awake, Jesus, but I don't know how. I've got good news for you. Even though we will slumber and sleep, the Bible tells us that Jesus will never slumber or sleep. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus upholds us. He keeps us at every moment by his power. He promises to always be with us, and he promises that he will never change. And those burdens that we carry are burdens he can take. He can take them. Right now, whatever burden that you're carrying, he can take it. Give it to him. Trust him. And see, it's in trusting him that we stay awake. It's in daily casting our anxieties on him. We stay awake by needing Jesus to be who he is. That is how we live in his realness. He's coming back. We don't know exactly when. This day, this day could be the world's last night. So Jesus says, be ready. That doesn't mean be antsy or restless, or frantic, or scared. It means be alive to gospel truth. Be awake. Be awake to the realness of Jesus because Jesus is real. And he's coming back. And this table each week is meant to say that to us. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says that when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we come to this table to remember that Jesus died for us, and we come to this table to anticipate his return. And so in one way, every week this table is like a wake-up call. Think about it like that. Every week when we come to this table, it's a wake-up call that brings us back to the reality of Jesus. This table brings us back to the realness of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we want you to eat and drink with us. We want you to come to this table and be reminded of his realness. We're going to serve the bread first. It's gluten-free. Retain the bread. We'll eat together. And then we're going to serve the cup.
and we'll come serve you now. His body is the true bread.